Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. Welcome back, weirdos, to episode 106 of History for Weirdos. We're so happy to be back. We took uh, a break, I guess, or an absence last week. We did. As we were traveling. And it's really good, actually, that we took an absence because on our travels, on our trip to Boston, we got the flu. We did. And it would have just been an awful, (laughs) but maybe also amazing episode. We would have been sniffling the whole time, (laughs) coughing, sneezing. I'm sure people would love it. In a weird sort of way. I think it's more, <laughs> that'd be more of like right before or right after Christmas. That would be like the perfect or the holiday vibe would be that sort of episode. Just being sick and like tired and everything. I I deeply disagree. You deeply disagree? I don't think there's any time for us to record ourselves <laughs> sniffling and sneezing. Okay, well, when you put it that way, fine. <laughs> But overall, our despite getting sick, I would say our trip was really great. It was. I mean, Boston is such a beautiful city, especially in the fall. Yes. Um, because it's not quite as cold yet. Still, for a Southern California boy like me, it's a little cold. But there's so much to see and there's so much history. And mm-hmm. I it made me have a new profound... What's the word I'm looking for? Appreciation. appreciation. Thank you. <laughs> More profound appreciation of early settlement period and then also more of like the American Revolution. I'd say for the American Revolution for me too. Yeah. Not so much the early settlers. I don't vibe with them. I don't vibe (laughs) with them, but at the same time, like their lives were so hard and like those like old, like 17th century buildings are so ugly. You're like, God, your life must have been terrible. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But it was really cool to, I'd say, see parts of American history that we learned in school kind of come to life in a way. We got to see Paul Revere's house. We got to see, um, well, not see the actual ships, but we got to do the Tea Party Museum. Yeah, that was so cool. Which was very interactive and fun. And guys, I threw a crate of tea into the Boston Harbor, and so did Stephanie. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) As soon as I said I did, I'm like, well, no, you did too. (laughs) But that was low-key, like, so much fun. It was really fun. That that was a really interesting museum because everyone that worked there was in character. Right. Representing someone that was actually there during the that night that the revolutionaries threw the tea into the Boston Harbor. Or the rebels, I guess, at that point. And it was just really cool. We got to, like, play along and yell, huzzah! <laughs> a lot of huzzahs. A lot of huzzahs. So if you haven't been to Boston, definitely recommend it. Really beautiful city, like Andrew said. And and we got to see family. We were there visiting my younger brother. And then we got to see my Uncle John and my Aunt Karen. Who do listen to the show. Yeah. So hi, if you guys are listening. <laughs> Hopefully. Because <laughs> we're giving you a shout out. <laughs> well, I guess if they let us know, then we'll know if they actually listen or not. So this is a test. It's a test. Will they pass? <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. And with them, we went to a place where you're actually doing the episode. So this is like a history for weirdos first, where we went to the see a place that we're going to be doing like an episode in the future about. Yes. Right now. Right now is the future. Wow. Yeah. I had written the episode beforehand. We went to the location, 
and now we're gonna talk about it yeah i mean and i guess it's it won't be a surprise <laughs> to you guys because it's literally in the title but. that's true you know what this is why are we acting like you don't know <laughs> we're gonna be talking about the salem witch trials but more more specifically i made quite an effort to cover what you don't know about the salem witch trials oh i am so fascinated already yay i'm so glad there's obviously like the basics in here but there were there's even more bizarre details to these events to this like kind of like horrific uh series of events i guess and i wanted to share those bizarre elements yeah, with you, you all when i think about the same witch trials all i think about is like oh these women were put to death mm-hmm. because they're quote unquote witches and yeah that's pretty much all i know about it there you go then this is gonna be perfect for you babe awesome i story time baby let's go let's jump right in So starting in early 1692, a Massachusetts Bay colony was plagued for nine months by a chaotic, violent, and deadly witch trial. That's a long time. That is a long time. By the fall of the same year, somewhere around 200 people were accused of being witches. 30 people were found guilty and 19 of them were executed. The legacy of these events has endured as a well-known colonial American reign of terror. It's a good way of putting it, Mm -hmm. reign of terror. Even so, there are parts of the story that you may not know. So, wonderful weirdos, today we'll be discussing some of the lesser-known elements, victims, consequences of the Salem witch trials. These witch trials are viewed as just a very notorious case of when things can go really wrong in terms of group think. And I think there's a lot of lessons for humanity in these events. Oh, I'm sure. And also weirdos, you probably can't hear it, but there is like a crow like right outside our window. So this is kind of, and it it was quiet up until like right now. So this is actually kind of perfect timing. It's kind of creeping me out a little bit. Not gonna lie. Yeah. He just started cawing out of nowhere. Yeah. Ooh, spooky. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let me give you some context for the world that surrounded the Salem Witch Trials. Okay. So back it up a little bit. Medieval and early modern Christianity, we're we're familiar with this. Right. Taught that the devil could give people, known as witches, the power to harm others in return for their loyalty. So this is a belief system that really developed in the medieval period that the devil could bestow power upon you interesting so that you would do his bidding right you don't really see this in early christianity not at all no the devil obviously exists in early christianity we we see it in the bible and things like that but not in this like kind of exchange of power dynamic interesting i never really thought about that yeah um i really because like i even wrote in my notes like yeah jesus never mentioned (laughs) the devil doing stuff like this or witches coming about so it's pretty modern (laughs) yeah in comparison So as a result of these fear-based teachings, the, quote, witchcraft craze rippled through Europe Mm -hmm. from the 1300s to the end of the 1600s. Right. Tens of thousands of supposed witches, mostly women, of course, were executed. And we actually did do an episode, I think almost exactly a year ago, on a, a European witch trial. Yeah, I did an episode on the Pendle witch trials. Yes. Yeah, so if you like this one and you haven't heard the Pendle witch trials, listen to that one next. There you go. So in 1689, the English monarchs, William and Mary, started a war with France in the American colonies. This is very, I don't know a lot about this. This is brief. This is just to give context. Fair. This is known as King William's War to the Colonists. 
and the conflict ravaged resources and lives in the regions from upstate New York all the way to Nova Scotia and Quebec. Wait, this is actually kind of interesting. I had never even heard of this conflict before. Yeah, that's why I told you I don't know more about it. Don't don't ask me more. Okay, fair. <laughs> no, this is probably a note for me. Okay, future rabbit hole in Wikipedia. <laughs> there you go. The point is that this conflict from New York to Nova Scotia to Quebec created refugees, right? Right. In the county of Essex. And more specifically, a lot of refugees were sent to Salem Village. Interesting. Okay. The displacement of people put a strain on Salem's resources. This meant that tensions were high already among the villagers and controversy brewed over this new reverend that came to town at the same time, Reverend Samuel Paris. And that's Paris, like the city, but with an extra R. Mm -hmm. He became the first ordained minister in 1689 and quickly gained a reputation for his rigid ways his greedy nature. And that's not a good combination when you have refugees showing up. Right. So he sounds like he's a real good person. Yes. We will get he's into him. He's a fun guy. Yeah, I would say so. I think that's how they would have described him. And we'll get into him a little bit more. But this led, obviously, to further tensions with the Puritan villagers who were quarreling a lot. There were just a lot of disagreements before the witch trials and even before the accusations of witchcraft, people were speaking about how the increased arguments were the result of the devil. That the devil was present and making them fight with each other. Wow. Yeah, really interesting, right? It is. Um, and during the Salem witch trials, arrests were made in numerous towns, not just Salem, which a lot of people don't know. I did not know that. Arrests were also made in the city or the town of Andover and Topsfield. So okay. it wasn't contained just to Salem. Right. So it sounds like all over uh, this little area of Massachusetts. Yes. Where there's these this increase in refugees, lack of resources, um, and Puritans. Right. right. So the grand juries and trials for this capital crime of witchcraft were conducted by a court of Oyer, <laughs> which I don't know what that means. And uh, in 1692, and a court, a superior court of Judith Ketcher, I don't know what that means either, in 1693. I don't know what these court names are meant to indicate. Uh, you're looking the wrong person. I have no <laughs> idea either. Both were held in Salem is the point. These okay. separate courts that are managing the witch trials. So there's some sort of like weird criminal courts. Is that there are weird criminal courts, yeah. Okay. And... Everything basically that takes place is in Salem, which is why we associate Salem with the witch trials, even though not all of the accused or the accusers were from Salem. Got it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Overall, it was the deadliest witch hunt in the history of North America. Lovely. <laughs> so let's get into understanding a little bit more about the accusers, the people who are accusing their fellow community members of this crime which was considered a very severe crime so i also need to clarify that there are actually two salems in the 17th century there's a bustling commerce oriented port community on massachusetts bay known as salem town which would evolve into modern day salem that's right. where we went and roughly 10 miles inland is a smaller poorer really important to note poorer farming community called Salem Village 
Yes. There's a notable social divide between these two locations, as well as a rivalry over land, the land kind of in between, with these two leading families, the Porters, who are in Salem Town, the wealthier one, mm-hmm. and the Putnams, who are in Salem Village, the poorer one. Oh, wow. So there's we're already seeing like refugees coming into play, like some sort of socioeconomic divide yes. all, like as a backdrop. So this is a recipe for a disaster. Yeah, that's a really great way of putting it. So in 1689, through the influence of the Putnams, Samuel Paris, who we mentioned before, he was mm-hmm. a merchant from Boston who went to Barbados and became a pastor and then is the pastor of Salem. Um, he ended up in the Congressional Church there Paris studied theology at Harvard College, now known as Harvard University. I think I've heard of that place. I think so, too. Probably some, like, podunk school. Probably. But he never finished school, actually. Um, He brought to Salem his wife, their three children, a niece that was in his care, like his ward, and two enslaved people known as John Indian, a man, and Tituba, a woman. This is important to remember later on. Paris was an Orthodox Puritan pastor, and his preachings began to divide the village's congregation. So he was very conservative, and half the congregation was like, yeah, this is what we need because we're seeing all of these issues, and it's the devil. We need to be more conservative, more strict. And the other half of people were like, you know what? Life's pretty hard already. I don't know why this dude's so harsh. Right. I'm pretty sure that's how they said it. He was a big, big fan of talking about the devil. Probably not a big fan of the devil, but he was a big (laughs) fan of bringing up the devil. I mean... Does that make you a big fan of the devil? Kind of low-key does. Yeah. So then in January of 1692, we have Elizabeth, also known as Betty Paris, age nine, and Abigail Williams, age 11. Betty is the pastor's daughter. Okay. Abigail is his niece. So they're nine and 11 years old. They're hanging out in the evening and they begin to have unexplained fits. The fits involve convulsions, um, shouting, twitching, things like that. And they were diagnosed, diagnosed by whatever type of physician they had at the time as being possessed. I mean, it's kind of wild how in certain times, like we regressed so much with the medical knowledge. Yeah. Like this is, it's wild how yeah. like inaccurate this is. It's so stupid. Like there's like an official, like not some crackpot down the street, like an official diagnosis that's like, oh, you're possessed by like some demonic entity. To me, it almost seems like willful ignorance. It absolutely does. Like I know this isn't legit. But my religion tells me it's supposed to be legit. So that's what I'm going to say. Right. And I think also, again, with like this heightened sense of urgency around like, again, like that socioeconomic divide, refugees, it just sounds like it's really like a real, it's a tough time that's made being made even tougher. I think Paris has a big role in making it tougher with him Mm. being so puritanical, even for the Puritans. Right. And he's new. Right. He's actually not like a real pastor. Um, He sounds like a cult leader more than anything. It's very ripe for danger. Right. Which we're going to see happens. So going back to these young girls, 
Again, they screamed, they made odd sounds, they threw things, they contorted their bodies, and they complained of feeling someone biting and pinching them. Oh, God. Yeah. So eventually, what's really, really interesting here about the Salem Witch Trials, which I know a lot of the the Salem Witch weirdos will know this already, but this behavior began to spread mainly to other young girls, uh, pretty much only girls between the ages of nine and 18 would report experiencing the same quote unquote symptoms. Hmm. Unable to account for the behavior medically. Again, the local doctor, William Griggs was like, yeah, it's, it's everyone's possessed now. Okay, That's thanks, what's going Griggs. on. <laughs> Griggs is like so Griggs useless. Is such a crackpot dude. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this is when of course the horror and the madness truly begins to unravel. Like, this was the last straw, essentially, for Salem and its people. They're like, oh, my God. Now all the little girls are possessed. We're just going to freaking lose it. Oh, man. It's one of the... It's like, this is the perfect scenario of you know what's going to happen and you want it to not to happen and there's you're powerless to do so. Yes, exactly. So we're going to talk about the Putnams. We're leaving the Parises behind for a moment and we're going to focus on the Putnam family. Okay, and the Putnams just remind me, which side are they again? I wouldn't look at it as sides. Do you mean which location? Yes. They are located in Salem Village, which is the poorer Got community. Got it. Okay. The community that is kind of has the little chip on their shoulder with Salem Town, which is where we went. Right. So Thomas Putnam is the patriarch, and he was one of the wealthiest residents of Salem Village. And he is the first to seek warrants against the accused witches oh he's a highly influential church member and he's the one who gave paris his job Um, and he's really considered a big driving force behind the trials he and other members of his family had property disputes with several of the accused witches by the way you know this was going to be a question i had is like are there is there some sort of like business like dispute between the accused and the accusees or the yeah. accusers i mean yeah that's really astute of you yeah because remember i mentioned that salem village is seen as like the poorer one and right they're really trying to like gain more power particularly the putnam family they want more land so they're arguing with these families that have these small farms saying like, no, that's ours or we're trying to buy it from them and they won't sell it type of thing. Of course. So they're lovely people as you can imagine. (laughs) Thomas's wife, Anne was actually one of the few adults to claim affliction by witches. Many of the accusers were either accusers are either related to Thomas Putnam or connected to him in some way typically through business wow so this guy is really like a central figure in he's a this puppet whole... master yes that's a great way to put it and a lot of the accusers as i mentioned are adolescent girls less than 18 so it's either they're related to him or they are the daughters of the men that he knows and works with and does business with interesting mm-hmm. sadly their 12 year old daughter also named Anne was one of the chief accusers during the whole proceedings. Oh, that's just evil. I know. She was friends with the girls who initiated these accusations, the daughter and niece of Paris. 
and she also claimed to be afflicted by involuntary fits. Here's a point that I know a lot of people won't know. The fascinating and devastating part of young Anne's role in this is that in 1706, she would become the only one of the so-called afflicted girls to publicly admit that she had lied and offered an apology. Oh. Yeah. We actually have her statement. Oh my God. So here's an excerpt of Anne Putnam's confession read before this same congregation in Salem Village on August 25th, 1706. Oh my goodness. You ready? I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a, it's a long paragraph, but I okay. think it's important. Quote, I desire to be humbled before God so that, so that sad and humbling providence that befell my father's family in the year about 92, 92 crew. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god a different 92 that i then being in my childhood should by such a providence of god be made an instrument for the accusing of several persons of a grievous crime whereby their lives were taken away from them whom now i have just grounds and good reason to believe they were innocent persons and that it was a great delusion of satan that deceived me in that sad time whereby I justly fear I have been instrumental with others, though ignorantly and unwittingly, to bring upon myself and this land the guilt of innocent blood. Oh. The end. That's heartbreaking. So heartbreaking because she's only 12 during this time. And it's I. there's no evidence of this. This is purely me. But I think it's pretty obvious her parents made her accuse people oh of course they did because it sounded like she didn't want to she didn't want to and and she she accused people that her parents had beef with right and you're 12 years old so of course you just want to make your parents happy yes so i don't hold her responsible at all that's 100 percent on the parents also think of how courageous it is to say that you lied and you were wrong right and that's so that was 1706 all this happened 1692 is when the trials happened right and her public apology was 14 years later so she's like yeah like in her mid-20s at this point yeah she's an adult she's probably a, a mom herself at that point and is looking back on this horrible event and is obviously riddled with guilt yeah to the point where she has to be like yo i at least know that i lied it really implies that the others were not necessarily maybe as overtly lying, kind of like how she said, actually, she said, um, ignorantly and unwittingly participating right. in this. So we're going to get into that a little bit more because we're going to talk about the aspect of mass hysteria Ooh. that was going on. So the Salem witch trials are considered a well-documented and infamous case of mass hysteria. The hypothesis of mass hysteria is meant to explain why so many young girls would suddenly be afflicted by these like quote-unquote fits and go on accusing people of, again, what they saw as a very serious crime. But, Andrew, you ask, what is mass hysteria? <laughs> what is mass hysteria, Stephanie? Can you tell me? That's an excellent question. Thank you for asking. It's a seemingly contagious, seemingly contagious, disassociative phenomenon. For example, suddenly having convulsions. 
that takes place in a group of people or in an institution under conditions of anxiety, stress, and social pressure. Some psychologists believe mass hysteria is a form of groupthink. In cases of mass hysteria, the group members all develop a common fear that will often spiral into like public panic. You may have also realized that most of the accused were children, accusers, excuse me, were children. Correct. Most of them, I think the eldest accuser is Anne, senior, who's a mom, but behind her, I think the eldest is 18. Wow. So they're young. And one could infer that children are more easily influenced and prone to kind of like magical thinking almost. Of course. Like if your parent is like, oh my God, are you twitching too? <gasps> I wonder if the devil got you. We, Who do you think is the witch? Right? If you're a little kid, you're probably like, um, I don't know, like my mean school teacher. <laughs> Maybe she did it. Right. That's really good insight. I just think it's so, so sad to see something like this happen with children at the center of it. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. It definitely sounds like mass hysteria, even though it's it's kind of something that's a loose definition. But it does seem like that's what was going on in Salem. And fun fact, one of our earliest episodes was also a historical example of mass hysteria. Do you remember what it was? Oh, I remember it was the dancing plague. Yes. If I recall correctly, that's like one of the first five episodes I think we ever did. Yes, it is. Wow. The dancing plague. So if you are interested in mass hysteria, definitely go check out that episode. (laughs) Wow. We're just referencing old episodes this episode too. Yeah. (laughs) Episodeception. Episodeception. So I want you to keep that in mind. This concept of mass hysteria, the focus on how many of the accusers are children as we dive into the legal process <laughs> oh boy of the witch trials themselves i mean the fact that that's in this uh, even a sentence the legal process of the witch trials is right. such a joke right no you're absolutely right and it's it's going to be a joke you're going to see just so, a really 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 terrible one yeah a really dark one yeah so amidst the chaos of neighbors accusing each other left and right the law has to get involved to sort things out and obviously convict these witches that are causing so many problems. Of course, these darn witches. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, though, the legal process was a little messy in convicting witches. No. Yeah. They didn't have good standard operating procedures. <laughs> <laughs> SOPs. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so first, they had what were called Uh, preliminary examinations and these were informal interrogations where the accused would be questioned about their alleged involvement in witchcraft so they would obviously the people being accused are like i'm not a witch but they're and they're like but can you prove it and they're like no so then they're like well guess what we have spectral evidence that you are which means (laughs) That someone else would come into these interrogations and be like, yeah, I actually saw like a spectral version of Andrew committing witchcraft the other night. Like even though Andrew was like at the town meeting with everyone else, like I went for a walk and I saw like a specter version of Andrew, Mm -hmm. like making cats dance through the devil. 
This literally is such a joke. Like anyone with like r- remotely rational thing would be like, are you, is it like, are you having a laugh at me? Like what, what's going on here? This was considered valid evidence. If someone could say that they saw your specter committing witchcraft, that meant you were guilty of witchcraft. Well, then I would be like, well, I saw your specter too. Sometimes that would happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that would happen. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> People were like, oh, yeah, then I saw you as well. So obviously this was very chaotic because this evidence isn't actual evidence. Um, You don't say. Yeah, it just made it really easy for people to point fingers. Of course. If you were accused, you'd be arrested and thrown in jail immediately. And then after these preliminary interrogations, there would come the actual trial. And here's the kicker about the trial that I don't think a lot of folks know. I didn't know this. You were only for witches. Other crimes, not the case. Witches were presumed guilty from the start. Oh. So it wasn't innocent until proven guilty. It was guilty until proven innocent. Yeah, that's that's not good. Uh Uh-uh. It was up to the accused to provide some sort of tangible evidence that they were not a witch. And they had to do that without any legal representation or the right to confront their accusers. So again, if I'm saying like, I saw Andrew the other night during the town meeting, I saw his specter doing this. You could not argue with me. Right. Like I couldn't cross examine you. Yes. Be like, okay, like what exactly was I doing? What What clothing was I wearing? What what did the cats look like that were dancing around? What was the fire? Was it bright? Was it like, was it dim? They could not address their accusers and they could not have legal representation, but they had to prove they were innocent. Oh my God. I mean, it's a, it's a show trial. It's awful. They're, they're truly just guilty because someone said they were, which is terrible. So as you can imagine, these trials were pretty one-sided and many of the accused didn't stand a, stand a chance. If you maintained your innocence, you might face even more pressure And that's where things could get really ugly. That pressure would be to accuse someone else. Oh, geez, Louise. They're like, okay, okay, you know what? We're starting to believe you that you're innocent. But someone has to be guilty. So who is it? (sighs) So oftentimes the accused would accuse others in order to get themselves free. Which just fueled the hysteria even further. Right, truly mass hysteria. Mm-hmm. Once you were convicted, so the trial's over, <laughs> this really just legal proceeding has ended and you've been convicted of witchcraft, the punishment was severe. But despite what people think, no one was burned at the stake. That's another misconception of the witch trial. When one thinks of Salem witch trials, it's easy to imagine witches being burned but that this idea of burning at the stake is actually a trope from the European witch trials. Right. Being burned at the stake was an age-old punishment reserved for heretics. Fun fact, like Joan of Arc. Yes. That's why she was burned at the stake for heresy. So in reality, most of the convicted Salem witches were hanged. And others spent time in prison under horrible conditions and you know, may or may not die in those conditions. And it wasn't until the general recognition of the injustice that things began to change in this sense, uh, because the trials were seen as such a massive miscarriage of justice. 
that they started a thing like maybe we shouldn't just leave people to rot <laughs> in prison and hang them just because someone said they did something right without like any sort of cross-examination without any sort of legal representation mm-hmm. not again just a recipe for disaster it's not a good look salem village it's not a good look it's not a good look so now we're going to talk a little bit about the accused okay the people who are accused of witchcraft and we're going to look at some of the lesser known individuals who were accused of witchcraft during these trials and through this if you if you look into the accused in general like the full list you'll see how social and economic factors really play a big role in whether or not you're suspected of witchcraft wow this is a really just very convenient way to gain like power, power. And money yeah to get rid of quote-unquote undesirable people in the community so that you can then have their land for example oh my god yes first we're going to talk about tichuba it's a really interesting figure in this whole um story so if we go back to what i was talking about much earlier we are looking at Betty and I believe Abigail, the two, the first two little girls who start having the symptoms of possession. Right. They were, when that started happening, they were in the company of Tichuba. So we're going to get into it. Tichuba was an enslaved young woman, potentially of uh, Caribbean origin, maybe indigenous American, maybe African. We don't actually know. She belonged to Samuel Paris, the pastor. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot we don't know about her. For example, we don't know exactly how old she was during the witch trials, but the historians think she's between 12 and 17. Oh, so she's young. She's a baby herself. So also a child of, involved in this mess. And when Paris purchased Tichuba, he was a working merchant. He wasn't a pastor yet. He was a merchant from Boston. He was unmarried, and it is very widely believed that he had a sexual relationship with her when he bought her. And at this time, again, she's maybe 12 to 17, so he probably purchased her when she was really little. Wow. Yes, obviously non-consensual on multiple levels here, and so much for him being a man of God. Right? Like, that's out the window. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So he owns Tichuba, and the other enslaved person he owned was John. But John is not accused at any point. So Tichuba is accused of using magic and engaging in witchcraft. And it's believed that she was making those little girls that she grew up with them. She's about their age. They slept together. They shared a room. They shared a bed. These are like her companions, mm-hmm. but Tichuba is an enslaved per- person. Tichuba is not white, and she has different beliefs than the Puritans do. So she's a really easy person to point fingers at. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She's a completely unprotected child in this. So she is accused, and during her trial, Tichuba confesses. She very infamously confesses to practicing witchcraft. Potentially, they think it was under duress or fear of severe punishment. So it's thought that since she was owned by the preacher, that he told her, like, the best thing you can do is just admit what you did. Oh, 100%. This was definitely under duress. 
And she has literally no rights. She is his property. So, but she confesses. So everyone's like, oh my God, this is real. This proves it, right? She implicated others in the community though, when she confessed and her confession contributed to growing paranoia and it led to the subsequent accusations that we will talk about. Damn, if I was her, I would have confessed to uh, her owner. Right? Paris. I'd be like, it's yeah, him. He's the ringmaster. He's yeah, actually he's the devil. The he's, devil. He told me he's the devil. Yep. And he, I'm just his slave. Yep. Then that literally. There you go. Yeah. Let's see what happens. I know. But think of how young she was. No, she's too, like, she's terrified. Too Foreign land by people who are hate malicious. Her yeah. For just being who she is. And she's being accused of this thing. And the thing is, we think that she did practice, like, she wasn't a uh, Christian. She practiced some sort, wherever she's originally from, some sort of, quote, like, pagan system. Right. And so they think that that's where they got kind of the leverage of, like, see, it's the devil, because she's not Christian. So they probably asked her, like, do you do these things, things that they had seen her do for, like, spiritual practices? And she's like, yeah, I do those things. Like, what's wrong with that? Right. Really messed up situation. After the trials, Tichaba remains in Boston goal, which just means prison. I don't know why they don't say prison, <laughs> but she <laughs> remains there and she has very poor living conditions for 13 months. Oh, Samuel Paris refused to pay her jail fees. He could have just paid for her to get out. But during that time, they made her testify in other witch trials they made her be like, right, since you are an agent of Satan, can you confirm that this person is an agent of Satan? And she always said yes. Oh, so that's why they kept her around. Right. And then in April of 1693, Tichuba is sold to an unknown person for the price of her jail fees. Tichuba's story highlights the complex dynamics of race and power and fear that are very present in the Salem Witch Trials. And her status as an enslaved person, practicing a different faith, all of these things, really shows why she was such a heavy target for accusations. Yeah, she was, I mean, yeah, like low-hanging fruit. Low-hanging fruit, yes. It's terrible. So that's the story of Tichuba. And now we're actually going to talk about the male victims. Wow. The male accused because... It was of the like 200 accused, it's disproportionately women. Of course. But there are male accused. And I'm going to share just like little one sentence reasons each of these men were accused. Okay. Okay. So we have George Burroughs, who's in his early 40s when he's accused. He was previously the minister of Salem Village before Paris came around. Wow. Before Putnam put Paris as the preacher. Oh my God, so many peas. Uh, it, it was Burroughs and he's arrested in Maine and brought because he doesn't live in Salem anymore and he's brought back to Salem for trial um he was the son-in-law of Wilmot Red who was a woman that was accused she still lives in Salem and she was just a really cantankerous old lady <laughs> That peop- that's why he moved out. That's probably that's why him and his wife. Yeah, yeah. He got away from the mother-in-law, but then she's accused of witchcraft because she's a cranky old lady. Right. And they're like, Oh my God, how could George Burroughs not know that his own mother-in-law was a witch? He's obviously in on it. 
So that's why they get him from Maine. They <laughs> arrest him. And she is the only, um, she's from another town, one that I didn't even mention before. It's Mar- Marblehead in the same area, but she's not Salem. She's the, actually the only citizen of Marblehead to be executed. And she's in her 70s when she's executed. Oh my God. Heinous. Yes. Then we have another George, George Jacobs Sr., and he's in his early 70s. He's arrested along with his granddaughter. No. And she was spared in exchange for accusing her grandfather. Mm. Makes me so sad. Then we have Samuel Wardwell, who we know was 49, and he's arrested with his wife and daughter. They were accused and he had defended them. So he gets arrested and they force a confession out of him and he is executed, even though he did recant that confession and say that he made it under duress. Oh my God. Then we have John Proctor, who's 60. He's a very vocally opponent of the witch trials. And, of course, was arrested after his wife, Elizabeth, was accused. He came to her defense and kind of was talking about what a sham all of this was. And then they were like, actually, you're probably a witch, too. So he's basically just saying what everyone's thinking but too afraid to say. Yes, exactly. Then we have John Willard, who's 35. He was the deputy constable. And he was accused for refusing to arrest witches man alleged witches so he's like the best of being like a cop yes he was like this is dumb i'm not gonna arrest these people and they're like that's because you're in on it (laughs) you're also a witch he's like also i have an iq above 40 so (laughs) it's just to me it's devastating and yet comforting to see how many people were willing to call this out and be like, this is terrible, this is stupid, this doesn't make sense, whatever their argument was. But then it's devastating to see that they're punished for that. Right. For having some sort of reason. And then we're going to talk about the last male accused we're going to cover is Giles Corey. His, his name's Giles. His name's Giles. Very his first cool. name, like Rupert Giles from Buffy. We're going to talk a little bit more about his story. He was 80 years old and he was a wealthy farmer. He was known as a stubborn old man and was openly critical of the witch trials. My man. So, of course, he is charged and arrested. He pled not guilty to all charges and he refused to stand trial. He's like, I'm not even going to participate. You can't make me. Yeah, because it's like illegal. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like incredibly illegal. Since he refused to stand trial, he was deemed guilty. And as a result, he was forced to undergo penfall, which is penfall edur, which is strong and harsh punishment in French. And it's a process whereby a defendant has increasingly heavier weights placed upon their chest until they either cooperate with what you want them to or they die. So, Corey withstood the torture for two days. They're covering him in stones for two days until he his, he was crushed. He died. 
Can you imagine just putting stones on an 80-year-old man until they died? Like that, I mean, that's like literally unconscionable. An 80-year-old man. Unless it was 80-year-old Hitler. Right, but it's not. But it's not. It's Giles Corey. Yeah. His last words were reportedly, are you ready for this? Oh, this is going to be good, isn't it? More weight. Oh my God. Yes. What a gangster. That's like one of the best lines I think I've ever heard. Yeah. He was like more weight and then more weight. Yep. Sadly though, his wife, Martha was executed three days later. Cause they were like, Oh, he was definitely a witch. She's definitely a witch. They hung her. The Corey case is the only time in us history that pen for et dur is ever used. Wow. Today, there is, in the Salem Witch Memorial, a stone bench with Giles Corey's name that reads, Giles Corey pressed to death. And we saw it, and we took a picture of it. We did, yeah. We'll post that on the Instagram. Yeah. So now that we've gone through some of the male victims that people probably had not heard of, we're actually going to talk about how animals played a part. Um, in the witch trials no i know i almost didn't put this because i was like this is gonna make andrew too sad it's really sad not the people dying <laughs> not the men and women and children being hurt it's actually the animals this is what i thought would be too much for you <laughs> <laughs> no, God. but it's interesting and i i had never heard of this so i thought this would be very important to add so since it was believed that witches had familiars AKA like a little helper, an assistant. Yeah. That would help them like do their bidding and like do evil Satan yeah, things. Like Sabrina's black hat. Salem. Salem's her familiar. That's right. No, yeah, that's right. Her name's Salem. <laughs> yeah. Salem. Oh my gosh. So because of this, many villagers during the trials were on the lookout for possessed animals, which were thought to take the form of pretty much any creature. It could be a cat. It could be a dog. It could be a bird. It could even be someone's ox, someone's cow, or someone's pig. Oh, my God. So animals that suddenly became sick or injured or died without an apparent cause were thought to be victims of witchcraft. Like, if randomly, like, oh, like, my chickens are really sick. Oh, my God. It must A witch was here. Of course. Of course. So villagers believed that witches kidnapped animals and rode them around to their witch meetings at night. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Oh my God. Resulting in weakness, injury, or strange behavior, maybe even death of the animal. So like your ox are being funky today. It's probably because a witch rode it to the witch meeting. If an animal suddenly appeared tired or sick, it was... It would be called that animal was quote hag ridden the night before they had a term ridden hag ridden they had a term for it yeah because like old witches you know witches are hags exactly yeah in october of 1692 an afflicted girl in andover the other town one of the other towns i mentioned accused a neighbor's dog of trying to bewitch her so the villagers shot the dog on sight Man, that is messed up. Also, that girl deserves like a major slap in the face. It was only after the dog was shot and was dead that the minister of Andover like examined the dog and he actually declared that the dog was innocent. Wow, you don't say. Yeah, it was a little late for that, sir. Yeah. He reasoned that if the dog 
had actually been the devil in disguise trying to bewitch a little girl, it wouldn't have been possible to kill it so easily. <laughs> I'm just staring at Stephanie. I know. Like, literally like... Andrew looks enraged. <laughs> but since the dog did die, obviously it was innocent. Wow. Yeah. A second dog in Salem was supposedly a victim. Um, it was like the familiar or like it had been bewitched by one of the men that was accused. And because they didn't want the dog being bewitched by the devil, they killed it. So they didn't think that the dog was guilty, but they thought that the devil was in the dog. Kind of like splitting hairs there. Yeah. Either way, the dog died, which is terrible. Uh, did you ever hear about this before no i didn't it's making me so upset that that's it for the animals i couldn't do more because i was like this is gonna be too rough yeah i'm I'm glad um hold on one second sorry babe i lost my place okay so now that we've covered the animals yeah which i'd argue is the roughest part of this episode we're gonna go into additional people that were accused so we've covered tichuba some of the men that were accused and the animals, but now we're going to go into some of the other accused and their stories. Starting off with Dorothy Good, who was four or five. No. When she's charged with witchcraft. Is she the youngest person? She's the youngest accused. Correct. Her mother, Sarah Good, was an accused witch and... It was said that before this, that Dorothy, who's four, was seen as being animalistic. And once the witch trials took place, it was seen as evidence that she and her mom had been consorting with the devil. It's probably just a kid being a kid. It's probably just a four-year-old. Right. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. So despite probably having no idea, I mean, at four, I can barely remember being four, but despite having no idea what was happening, little Dorothy confessed to her crimes when she was questioned by the magistrates of those two courts. And as a result, she spent seven months in prison, and, but was eventually released after her mother was hanged. Oh my God. I don't know why. I think maybe the reasoning may have been like, oh, her mom's kind of like the leader in this situation. So with the mom gone, the little girl's not a threat. I don't know. Because it's stupid. So I really don't know why they did that. Right. You can't really apply logic to the situation. Yes. Then we have Miss Elizabeth Johnson Jr., who was 22. She was accused, convicted, and sentenced to death. She received a stay of execution, though, the day before she was to be hanged and was ultimately never executed. Oh, that's good. Wild part of this. In 2022, she became the last of the accused to have her conviction officially overturned by the Massachusetts General Court. Wow. So they, in 2022, so just last year. Just last year, Miss Elizabeth Johnson was pardoned basically yes oh my god of witchcraft i mean it's insane that like on the books yeah they think they have that apparently the 329 year delay (laughs) in that (laughs) was due to the fact that she didn't have children and so she didn't have any descendants petitioning for her in court a lot of 
descendants of the accused would over time petition, you know, or even if you find out many generations later, like, oh, that's my ancestor. Right. You could go to the Massachusetts General Court and petition for them to be their conviction to be overturned. But this woman didn't have anyone to do that. But they found her in the records and were like, oops, <laughs> we got to better do this person, too. Yeah. So her name is finally cleared. Um, and even though she didn't have any family members petitioning for her, do you want to know how her name got cleared? Yes. I'm interested. An eighth grade civics class in North Andover. <coughs> No. Yes. They found out about her when they were learning about the witch trials, and they found out that this woman had not been pardoned or deemed innocent, and so the eighth grade civics class petitioned for her. Oh, that's so endearing. Isn't that so sweet? It is. That she got justice, finally. So as I mentioned, these are just a few of the accused because overall more than 200 people were accused of practicing witchcraft. And you said 30 were convicted and 19 were executed. Correct. Good wow. memory, babe. It's numbers. I'm good with numbers. Yeah, you do like numbers. So in 1957, we're jumping forward a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Massachusetts formally apologized <laughs> for the events of 1692. I bet it went like this, like... Yeah, so, um, yeah, we're sorry about that. <laughs> um, kind of embarrassing. Yeah, okay, let's move on. Nope. No. <laughs> they said, quote, the General Court of Massachusetts declares its belief that such proceedings, even if lawful under the province charter and the law of Massachusetts as it then was, were and are shocking and the result of a wave of popular hysterical fear of the devil in the community. I mean, that's not the best, that's not the best like apology. I feel like (laughs) it's like, Oh, but it was like, it's like literally hiding behind legality. Yeah. They're like, it was seen as legal at the time, but we acknowledge that it was like like, kind of messed up. But it's like, if you have a specific court, that's like you're, you're guilty until proven innocent. That literally defeats every single fiber of any sort of like like constitutional or even pre-constitutional law yeah i agree that should have been more plainly said i think for people to understand because that's the big lesson here right it is there the lack of justice is just so astounding (laughs) that's such a great soundbite right there like the lack of justice is astounding it really is so that was how massachusetts apologized and today as we saw on our trip The memory of the Salem witch trials remains very present in Salem. There are tourist attractions dedicated to the witch trials. There's the Salem witch trial memorial and lots of educational opportunities to learn about the accused. Right. In summary, the Salem witch trials left a dark legacy of injustice and hysteria, but they also contributed to important shifts in the American legal system, religious attitudes, and cultural awareness. Excellent. They continue to be a powerful historical lesson of the dangers of fear and intolerance. And I think Puritans, this wasn't like the only reason, but like, I think during this time they started to lose influence. Thank goodness. I know they were not chill. It's funny. I think I have Puritan ancestors. I'm like, man, I do not identify with you guys whatsoever. They were not chill. This is like kind of a little bit of a tangent but we learned about in boston this one woman who was a quaker and 
probably around the same time. Yeah. Um, when Puritans are obviously very prominent in the area of Boston and they hated her because Quakers believe that every individual person has a relationship with God and they don't need like a preacher. So she was trying to spread that information and was hanged (laughs) as a result of seeing everyone's equal and everyone can have their own relationship with God. The Puritans were not down with that. Yeah, not down at all. And also this actually reminds me of something. Fun fact for you weirdos. In the middle of the Boston Common, there used to stand a tree that was massive. I think it was like a massive like elm or oak tree, something like that. And they would hang people from that tree. Mm-hmm. It fell down. And what do you think they replaced it with? A playground for children. <laughs> can't make this up. Yes, and and I believe that would have been the tree where this Quaker woman, I can't remember her name right now, but where she was hung. Because yeah. that's where they would just do all the public executions. Right. And But now little kids play there. There's like a big slide and swings and things <laughs> like that. We walked right by it. Yeah. And the Boston Common was a mass unmarked grave. There's so many bodies there. Yeah, so the next time, if you're in Boston, you're walking through it, there's like 30,000 bodies that are unaccounted for that are underneath the Boston Common, at least. You're welcome, weirdos. You're welcome. What would you do without us? <laughs> <laughs> Probably live peacefully. But you don't want to do that. No, or else you wouldn't be listening. So that, my friends, is the story and hopefully some things you did not know about the Salem Witch Trials. Yes, thank you. That was incredible. I didn't know a vast majority of that. Oh, good. I'm glad. I, I love when I get to teach you things you don't know about because you know about so much. I do. Um, <laughs> Okay, you're that also, was really, really humble of me. You're also so humble. <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Incredibly humble. <laughs> and before I forget, let me share my sources because I had a lot. Okay? I had a lot. An amazing source that I recommend everyone check out is this... Uh, oh, no. Hold on. Let me click on it. I just have the link. I think it's the public library record of the Salem Witch Trials. Oh, wow. That's really cool. For... Yeah, the Boston Public Library has this page on the Salem Witch Trials where it's really interactive and you can learn about the accusers, the accused, the places, the descendants of the accused. It's just really cool. That's where I got a lot of my information from. Oh, that's neat. So shout out to the Boston Public Library. And then Smithsonian Magazine, uh, historyofmassachusetts.org, Smithsonian Magazine again, Britannica, very well mined funny enough that's where i got more information on hysteria oh very cool and this website called thecollector.com oh excellent yeah and those are my sources for the salem witch trials well thank you again stephanie that was quite an incredible episode oh thank you i hope you weirdos enjoyed it for the people that are big enthusiasts fans what's the right word i think enthusiasts enthusiasts interested in yeah of the Salem Witch Trials, I know that's the Roman Empire for a lot of people. Yes. I hope that you still got at least a couple of tidbits that you had never heard about before. Right. That I, was my goal. I think, I mean, there's at least, I mean, that you covered quite a bit from a wide range of angles and lenses. So. Well, thank you. Not to, not to just like hype you up, but <laughs> I think that, that is true. I'll take it. Thank you so much, weirdos. Next week, we're going to have another spooky episode. Yes, this so, time coming from me. Yeah, so keep your eyes and ears out for that. And otherwise, until next time, weirdos. Until next time, adios. Adios.